Today's scripture reading is from the book of Esther, chapter 4, verses 12 to 17, which can be found on page 491 in your pew Bibles. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you were in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jack. That was uh, that was an excellent reading. It's hard to know how to talk about politics in church these days, whether you're Canadian or a neighbor. Um, I want to begin by um, telling you a little bit about a woman named Valerie Jarrett. Don't know if you've ever heard of that name, Valerie Jarrett. Her name has emerged just a little bit during the election season, but it is not one of the top names that you hear um, when it comes to the politics of the United States. Uh, some people say that because of Valerie Jarrett that America has already had its first president. For you see that uh, Ms. Jarrett is kind of the backbone to the President Barack Obama. People say, I think, teasing that Barack Obama doesn't go to the left or the right or go through the door, shake a hand or give a speech or say anything on TV unless he has checked in with Valerie Jarrett. And who is Valerie Jarrett but a longtime friend and trusted advisor? When all of Barack Obama's other close friends uh, checked out of the administration after the first, uh, his, uh, his first four years. Um, uh, uh, Rahm Emanuel, uh, David Axelrod, the others went on to other careers in politics and on television. Uh, Valerie Jarrett remained as Barack Obama's number one chief advisor. Valerie Jarrett is the director of policy and intergovernmental affairs but she hardly shows up on the org chart. She's a kind of a mysterious figure, and it's not easily available to be able to get your hands or your eyes on the very deep nature of the relationship between Ms. Jarrett and President Obama. And thinking about her importance to the President of the United States in the last eight years, and indeed many years before as a political operative uh, in his early career, 
um, in the city of Chicago, um, it actually doesn't make me blame um, or hold it against Donald Trump that he would like his son-in-law to be a close advisor. It seems that when you have uh, people in high places, and if it was me, and I think if it was many of you, with that kind of responsibility, and maybe even just in normal life, actually, with the responsibility and the weight and the opportunity and the challenge of normal life, it seems that we all need a kind of advisor like that. There needs to be conversations like that that go on behind the scenes. We have been looking at the book of Esther this season of Advent, and indeed this is the third Sunday where we're considering Esther's story. The scripture lesson uh, is familiar, and we're going to go there in a couple of minutes, but, but Esther has, has many, many important themes, and a few themes that are troubling, a couple of themes that are very mysterious. Uh, as Phil pointed out really clearly last week, that Esther is uh, a story where God's name is not mentioned at all. There's no inference of God um, uh, at all in a sort of that specific sense, that God is somehow behind the scenes of the story, and the challenge is to read the eyes of faith into the story in order to recognize the presence and the priority of God's working in that story. There's, there's, there's cultural immersion, there's the story of exile, there's the threat of ethnic extermination. There are a whole luscious series of banquets. Um, there's political intrigue, there's dramatic reversals. There's all kinds of interweaving themes in the story of Esther. And we looked at the story of Esther a couple of weeks ago and last week asking the question, how do we see the presence of hope? How do we recognize the reality of hope in this mysterious, not very traditional story when it comes to the Bible? And last week we looked at risk-taking as a way to identify that when, when people are courageous enough to take risks that may just cost them their lives, that maybe there is a sign there in that risk-taking community that the God of all hope is present and working. But another key storyline that we need to come to terms with, and I think for our own edification, our own growth, and our own discipleship, our own spiritual formation, is the storyline of friendship. Friendship in this story is deeply woven from the beginning to the end of the story of Esther. It's embedded in the very DNA of this story, this relationship between Esther and Mordecai. And it is a deep friendship, and I say that because it not only is a friendship rooted in intimacy and history, it's also a friendship rooted in strategy and common purpose and commitment. And it has something to say for us not only about hopeful presence, but it also has something to say for us for the nature of our relationships as the people of God in the church and elsewhere. Esther, we're told, lost her mother and her father, and so Mordecai, who was her cousin, adopted her, and in chapter 2, verse 7, we read that he raised her as his own daughter. He's known her for a long time. 
He gave her really important life-changing advice and counsel not to allow her identity as a young Jewish woman to be known in the kingdom of Persia, and so on. The story goes about that long-standing, intimate relationship. It's a story of partnership. And in Esther chapter 4, the passage that Phil used to launch into the nature of risk-taking because it's there in the conversation, what we find out is that Mordecai uncovers a plot. And because of his insight, he attempts to enlist his young protege, Esther, his daughter, his stepdaughter, his niece, if you want, his close friend and ally. He attempts to, to enlist her in the story. And what he does in that conversation that Jack just read for us is he challenges her with her own story. So you see what's going on here is, is that this is an example of somebody who is reading someone else's story and maybe has an angle on that story better than the person who's living it themselves. Because what Mordecai does in the conversation, basically, he says, when he says, who knows that you've come to this period of, for such a time as this, for, for this reality, maybe, maybe this is what this has all been about. What he's asking Esther to do is to read her own life, to look back and to, and to see the, in the details and the dilemmas of her life, to see something about purpose emerging in her story. This isn't just about her beauty. This isn't just about her good luck, perhaps. This is something more profound, more important. And it's something that maybe Esther actually can't get a read on herself. And Mordecai's powerful interpretation encourages Esther to go over her story and to agree with Mordecai's interpretation and to come out with a deep commitment and a partnership with Mordecai in this cause. Author Paul Waddell in his lovely, important book called Becoming Friends makes an astounding um, uh, observation, uh, especially astounding in our culture. He says that, that, that there are people in our lives, and one of the definitions of true friendship is that there are people who have the capacity to know us better than we know ourselves. Have the capacity to be able to read our personal narrative. And in many cases, to be able to read our hearts and to have a strong sense of our spirit better than we know ourselves. And this is why we say even in a culture of individualism where those kinds of statements people think, really, I think I know myself the best. I've been with myself the longest. Well, the fact is, yeah, actually haven't been with yourself the longest if your parents are still alive and if your aunts and uncles are still alive and if your older siblings are still alive. Other people actually have been with you just a little bit longer and including during the years where you didn't really know that you were you. But nevertheless, this idea that other people have this ability, this capacity, this gifting, this calling to read another person's life for their good, to read another person's life in order to help them to get on the same page with the story that God is writing in their life 
is a profound and a more important thing. And it's a great caution to all of us, regardless of what you think about this, but if you haven't heard it before, you can hear it here for the first time, is that no one was created to read their own story alone. And in fact, loneliness and the insistence on reading our own story and interpreting our own hearts all by ourselves, me, myself, and I, the holy trinity of the culture of individualism, we often leads to the kind of loneliness and isolation that separates us from the purposes of God, that puts us at length from the work of the Spirit of God. The second thing is this, is that there is an extended, deep story weaved into the Christian faith and the faith of the Old Testament and the theological commitments of God's people over time that suggests that our lives are rooted in this kind of profound friendship. Just quickly, as a kind of review, you can hardly read the main narratives of the Old Testament and some of the smaller narratives of the Old Testament. David and Jonathan, Naomi and Ruth, Elijah and Elisha. These are important stories that drive the purpose and the story and the narrative of God forward through the Old Testament. And every single one of them, and there are many others, are rooted in the fact that one person relies profoundly on the commitment and the life of another person in order to move them more deeply into the purposes of God. The Holy Trinity the way that we understand the very nature of God and the very nature of life, three persons, one God, is this idea and this notion, this faith reality that we understand that God is uniquely connected, indivisible, perfectly unified, and yet also with personalities according to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you can find throughout the life of the church, in the early church fathers, in the Reformed tradition, any responsible and orthodox tradition expression in the Christian faith over the decades and the centuries, these expressions of the deep, profound connectedness and cooperation of God as God and God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what St. Augustine wrote. The will of the Father and the Son is one, and their working is indivisible. In like manner, then, let them understand the incarnation and the nativity of the Virgin, wherein, um, wherein the Son understood, is understood as sent to have been wrought by one in the same operation of the Father and the Son indivisibly. The Holy Spirit certainly not being thence excluded, of whom it is expressly said she was found with child by the Holy Ghost. Now let me translate that for you. What he's saying is, in this, that the Son is the one who is born of the Virgin, but the Father and the Spirit are intimately involved with the reality of the Son. And in fact, in Orthodox theology over the years, we've, we've always affirmed that the people or the persons of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, never act alone. They always act in deep affection and deep purpose with the other two persons of the Trinity. This is the nature of God. And so it makes sense 
That is also the nature of human life as we know it. Jesus, in his life, he desires friendship. He sends his disciples two by two. He's rooting himself in the wisdom of Ecclesiastes that says the two are better than one and makes an argument for obvious reasons for that. Even in the cross, you remember dramatically that Jesus in his suffering, in the midst of his suffering, takes time to continue to build the friendship and the community between his mother Mary and his closest friend John. Because the purposes of God through Jesus on the cross are connected to people coming together in a depth and an intimacy and a commitment that they cannot achieve apart from the powerful work of the Spirit in their lives. Who are these people for you? Who are those gifts of God for the people of God for you? Where are you going to find people like this? Like Mordecai for Esther, interpreters of your heart, people who take you and your calling maybe even a little bit more seriously than you take your own self and your calling. People who have the capacity to love you in the way that love does, that love has that capacity to see things that often can't be seen, obviously, and also love that has the commitment to speak those things into somebody's life lovingly and truthfully. I learned this reality many, many years ago when I was a young pastor with a person who has since become, not my wife, but a very, very close friend, a colleague, and a partner in life and ministry in many other ways. The story starts like this. I received a call one day early in the morning that I had Blue Jay tickets right behind the plate in one of the championship years. I can't remember, but you know... Some of you probably weren't born, but there was a long time ago, and we got a little glimpse of that in the last couple of years, but it was amazing. And just to get the offer of those tickets, I mean, I was on cloud nine, and I get a call from my friend a couple of hours later. says, I need to talk to you about doing a funeral um, for us here at camp. And I said, what's the date? He said, the date. And I said, you know, I, I, I've got a conflict he said, well, what possible conflict could you have for, for, you know, for this opportunity to, to enter into ministry here? And I said, well, I've, 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 I've got these amazing tickets for the Blue Jays. And, and I, I, I can't remember correctly, but I think he muttered something like, dear Lord, have mercy. Um, anyway, he drove down from Muskoka, and we got together, and boy, did we ever have it out in the Unionville Starbucks back in 1993. Yikes. And in the middle of the conversation, when I was saying to him that, you know, it's, it's Jen's father-in-law, and Jen's from camp, and, and he looked me right in the eyes across the table. We only knew each other a couple of years. I'd been his professor at Tyndale College, and, and the story goes on, and he said to me, look at Paul. He said, but you're her pastor. She's been coming to our church for a couple of years. She said, he said, this opera, you were created for these kinds of opportunities. Are you serious? You're, you're, you're going to allow Blue Jay tickets, as important as they are to everybody right now, you're going to let that stand in the way of, of entering into this opportunity for Jen and for her family who are not church people or not connected in any way? He said, like, 
this is for you. That's really what Mordecai is doing with Esther. He's saying, dear girl, like just take a look at your story. Take a look at the opportunities. Take a, you think this is just good luck here? No, this is, I know this is hard. I know this is difficult. But this is what you were created for. This is who you are. This must be what God is doing in your life with all of these weird beauty pageants and all of this odd sexuality with the king and all of these kind of being completely immersed in the culture. And so I said, okay, I'll do it. And I went to the visitation in Markham. It was a beautiful night. It was just around the time that the crowd would have been gathering at the Sky Dome, and I was feeling very sorry for myself. I have to be honest. But can I also say that um, I was 31 years old, so I would just try to put it in context. I walked into the visitation feeling out of place. I didn't know anybody except for Jim, who was a summer staff person at our camp. And I talked to Jen and I met a few other people, and then I got myself prepared for the family conference. We went into a group, there was a group of about 12 or 15, and so we sat down, and uh, the, the widow turned the conversation over to me, and so I asked the question, how old was Bob? And the answer came back, he was 39. And I said, what, what exactly did he die of. They said he died of abdominal cancer. And just as we were talking about this, and just as my mind was just starting to spin, a young boy walked in the room, very uncomfortable, and he was Jen's stepbrother, and so he sat down and joined the conversation. I turned to him and I said, and who are, who are you, and how old are you? And he gave me his name. He said, I'm 10 years old and the penny dropped. My own father died in 1969 at 39 years of old of abdominal cancer, and I was 10 years old in fifth grade. And I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that somebody else had been able to read my story better than I could read my story. And I want to tell you that my relationship with my friend who challenged me, he didn't know those details of my life. He didn't know anything about the circumstances of my dad dying. And all of a sudden, I went from sort of striking out a few times to a real home run from thinking, what in the world would I have to say in this situation? And instead, was able to stand up at that gather, group of gathering, grieving despairing people and to start a funeral meditation by saying when I was 10 years old my dad died of abdominal cancer and he was 39 and I remember exactly what you're going through I'll tell you those are the kind of stories that get your attention for life and those are the kinds of friends that you need in order to be truthful and faithful to your calling in life. They certainly have affected me profoundly. And Mordecai had this gifting. He had this insight. He had this love. He had this prophetic, courageous spirit about him. 
He had that ability, that same ability that I think that Mary Beth rightly exercised with Scott when she said, be bold. That kind of direct advice that helps you to move closer into God's calling in your life than you would ever have a chance without that love, without that person, without that voice, and without that truth. And so here buried in the story of Esther, the story that seems so obscure to us, that seems so difficult for us to interpret because it's a kind of a hopeless situation and where in the world is God? And yet we have the God way presented to us so clearly. And the God way is that God never lets us wait alone. The God way is that God provides somebody for us. My mentor, Doug Webster, in his lovely devotional theology on John's gospel, writes this about the Garden of Gethsemane. He he says that, that we don't realize how much Jesus needed his friends when he begged them to stay awake when he was struggling in the garden. And that if they only knew how much he wanted them and desired their friendship, things could have been a little bit different and maybe seriously different. That's a lovely idea that Jesus as the son who is so used to the love of the father and the cooperation of the spirit and the partnership of the spirit desired the presence and the prayer and the friendship of his flagging friends in order for him to go to the cross. This seems like it is the way of God in the world. A few applications. There's an opportunity here, I think, to reshape our imagination for relationships and to understand that they're not just for our convenience and for our mutual benefit. That for friendships and neighbors and husbands and wives and parents and children, are for a deeper intimacy and for a deeper purpose. And the nature of mature relationship is not about that you get out what you need and someone else gets out what they need. The nature of a deeper relationship that points to the hopeful presence of God in your life and in the world is a relationship where people risk standing up and speaking the truth because they have been given the insight into the work of God in the heart of another person. Who doesn't need this? The word encouragement means to give people courage. You you don't just drum up courage on your own. You need someone to feed that courage. You need someone to say, be courageous, be bold. Because in your trouble, in your anxiety, in your confusion, We need that word from outside of ourselves. I think secondly, there is an opportunity to rethink the nature of love and commitment together as the people of God in the church. To recognize that this is so much beyond a voluntary organization where everybody gets to pitch in a little bit, but this is really family, where people have an opportunity, sometimes over years of observation, years of worship, years of prayer and ministry together, to be able to speak into each other's lives. Can you, can you imagine how 
the depth of our home churches could be rooted in this kind of insight. That we're not just showing up to give our ideas about the scripture that day, but we're showing up in order to allow time in the spirit to help us develop a genuine insight into the journey and the calling of other people in our community. May it be so. And finally, at this time of year, Esther and Mordecai, I think, give us a great reminder on God with us. Often in our dematerialized and disembodied spiritualities, we, we kind of look at sort of normal earthly things as kind of um, uh, just kind of sort of part B and part C of what God is really doing. But the reality is, at this time of year, we're celebrating the fact that God sent a person into a world in order to speak a life and a word of spiritual direction to the darkness and to the lostness of that world. The whole mystery of the incarnation is that God became a human being to walk with us, to teach us, to model for us, and to speak into our hearts what it means to be the people of God, what it means to be the beloved brothers and sisters and children of God. The incarnation is the first and the final understanding and picture that God has not left us alone. And Esther is in the canon even though God isn't mentioned because there is no chance that God is leaving his people to, to be alone in difficult circumstances. You can read it from Genesis to Revelation and God sends people just around the corner. Sometimes they're waiting and sometimes they walk right through the door. And if you look over the story of your life, one of the things that you'll find is that people over time, for me, mostly along with family, those people have been called the church. But they've been people who have showed up at every stage, every conversation, every major decision in order to be God with me in human flesh, in order to show me the way. It's no different for me than it is for you. Let's remember Mordecai and Esther. This Advent season, a deep, powerful story of the rescue of many people. Not a story without complications and without tensions and without philosophical conundrums about violence and vengeance and other things. But let's receive this story as a gift of hope that God hasn't left us alone to interpret our own lives, and nor has he left us alone to respond to his calling in our lives all by ourselves. By the way, in your Advent reading, you could take some time to look at the relationships that are given to us in those nativity narratives, the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth and the significance of their friendship and their encounter, the partnership of Anna and Simeon, the Magi coming as a group on a journey, following a star, discerning together, worshiping together, being prophetic risk takers together as further material for helping you to understand the way of God deeply embedded, not only in the story of the gospel, but in the story of the gospel for you and me. In the name of the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit, who started to work against loneliness from the, the Garden of Eden and has been working against our loneliness in love ever since. I share these words with you. Amen. Let's pray together. Who but you, Lord God, can weave your way into the details of our lives, often unidentified easily, and yet ever-present in order to give us hope in our loneliness. We take some time as gathered people to give you thanks for the important friends and mentors and parents and teachers and partners and neighbors who have been used by you to speak words that have helped us to see things and accomplish things and to make decisions that we would never be capable of doing on our own. We thank you that even in this common gift of deep friendship, family bonds, neighboring love, that you reflect back to us who you are as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we repent of the fact that we've often taken our families and our friends and our partners and our colleagues and our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in Christ for granted, thinking that you have something more for us way beyond them, but all the while you're reminding us that you show up in human flesh in order to show us the way of God in the world and in our lives. And so we pray for a revolution of the heart. We pray for a deeper experience of how you work through each other. We thank you for the story of Esther, buried so deeply in the Old Testament, so obscurely in a way. We thank you that that's precisely the point. That in the obscureness of our personal lives and our present politics, that you are involved and that you are working in many ways and most often behind the scenes as you weave the coming of your kingdom and its fulfillment. We thank you for people like Mordecai and Esther as challenged as they were with being completely immersed in the empire of Persia, as far away as they were from some of the religious practices of Jerusalem. We thank you for Joseph and Mary, Elizabeth and Zechariah, Anna and Simeon, people who were living lives and asking, where is God in the hopelessness? We thank you that you send prophets, and that you send friends, and that you send husbands and wives, and children, and colleagues, and neighbors, in order to help us to see that you are God with us, that you are filling our lives with hope for now and forever. We pray that you'd help us to not only receive the gifts of the other, but we pray that you would help us to be courageous to become the gift of the other for those whose lives we are called into intimately and strategically.
Do this work by your Holy Spirit in our church, in our small gatherings of house church, in good relationships and relationships that are struggling. May no one in Knox Presbyterian Church have to wait for your coming alone. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.